0: Welcome everyone to Kremlin File. Today we have with us retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman. Okay, and he was former director of European affairs at the National Security Council. And as foreign area officer, he also served in embassies in Kiev and in Moscow. I think in Kiev for one year, in Moscow for three. Mm-hmm. And then also as a political military affairs officer for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And lastly, up until 2018, he was also in the Joint uh, Staff at the Pentagon. He's author of Here, Write Matters, An American Story. Yes. If anybody hasn't read this book yet, absolutely fabulous.
1: Thank you, thank you for coming on. Yes,
0: yes, it's a real, real, real delight for us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, There's something that you and Olga have in common uh, you're both from
1: Brighton <laughs> Beach, right? Yes, we both came, same wave. Your whole,
0: your entire family, correct, is Ukrainian? Uh, it, it is. Uh,
2: it's uh, um, a Jewish-Ukrainian family for, you know, well over 100 years or so. I was born um, in Kiev. My my father was born in Kiev. I think my mother also, I know my mother was also born in Kiev.
0: And how were you living that period, let's say, coming up to the renewed aggression, no, yeah. against uh, Ukraine, and then afterwards, yeah. how 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 did you take that?
2: Before this war started, I wrote, uh, you know, appeared on on uh, cable news talking about this. Wrote an article in the New York Times, saying this war is all but certain, and we needed to do more to avoid it. At least try to avoid it. Uh, like I said, it was all but certain, but we should have at least tried to. We should have, you know, done a number of different things to warn off Russia, indicate that costs would be high. And then once uh, you know we, by the time we get into uh, January, I, I wrote a, a a long piece for Foreign Affairs, basically laying out what the Russians were going to do in detail, like you know the fact that they were going to go for maximalist aims, the fact that they were going to attack from all these directions on on the hopes of you know a quick uh, fait accompli scenario, um, turned out to be pretty darn accurate, um, uh, and that it was going to develop into a longer war with increasing risks for the U S uh, and just talking extensively about how, you know, as the longer this war goes on, the, the more dangerous it gets for the U S as Russia attempts to kind of find a way out of it. So unless Ukraine wins relatively quickly in the next several weeks, because Russia's a spent force, Russia's put it going all in with this offensive in the East, unless Ukraine wins decisively and, you know, proves to Russia that they cannot sustain this war, There is a risk of uh, general mobilization, and there is a risk of um, there's a risk of you know the US being dragged into this war as it extends for uh, months, maybe even years. But that's on kind of one intellectual level. I'm a military officer, I'm a strategist. Uh, On another level, uh, I feel a deep sense of pride for you know our um, my my birthland and how well that uh, they've they've performed. uh, The fact that they are taking the brunt of uh, the defense of democracy in the democratic world. Um, And I feel a deep sense of pride, something that I frankly didn't feel uh, for Ukraine um, because I was raised in the United States. I came over when I was four years old. I I only know uh, America. I served in Ukraine for a year. I served in Moscow for three years, but it was kind of more conceptual. I went went back there to visit uh, my my family's uh, grave sites when I went there on official travel or something of that nature. But now I feel it, um, and I feel, you know, (laughs) a deep sense of pride here. Uh, In my case, I mean, I'm also, you know, a a Jewish Ukrainian man, like being well-represented by uh, Avoniyar Zelensky, so, you know,
0: quite in demand right now. People looking at it from outside in the sense that we're not Ukrainian, um, it's also a battle for values that over the years we've seen eroded
1: well, that's what the, the special magical thing about Ukraine is. Is you know, it's not about leadership; it's about the people. I mean, it goes from bottom up, and and you see here, everyone you know risking their own lives in order to fight for their land, and that's you know. Whereas in other countries, more in the West, it's always more. You look to the government to save you and to institutions and. And there, it's like you know, after Yanukovych, before, like we we have to be on top of this, you know.
2: I think that's it is, in fact, a story of uh, the people and civil civil society that helped uh, kind of usher in this uh, Western orientation. But I don't think you could discount institutions. Uh, yeah, the military no, has made uh, major strides. Uh, I think Zelensky, um, you know, he at certain times uh deserved credit uh, uh the criticism he received for not living up to kind of the, his his own expectations of himself, uh being, you know, subject to entrenched interests that seemed impossible uh, you know, in in peacetime, but now are kind of easy compared to the existential threat. And he's really risen to the occasion.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think um there's something definitely to be said About the fact that, you know, yes, the Ukrainians are fighting for their homes, but they're also fighting for, it's an ideological struggle for freedoms. And, uh, you know, for many Americans, these are academic, these are conceptual, these are theoretical. What does democracy mean? What does the fight for freedom mean? And uh, we don't have to speculate about that anymore. We just turn on our TVs on every channel. We see Ukrainians fighting for, for, for these freedoms for our freedoms. I think there's a recognition that they're fighting mm-hmm. for our freedoms. And they're mm-hmm. fighting for kind of the soul, uh, the direction uh, of the 21st century. And that's why Ukraine enjoys such support, you know, especially if somebody does the uh, does the, some of the work of uh, framing the struggle in the right way, uh, the message really, really resonates. And uh, for too long, we, I don't think we had that. Um, I think this administration, you know, did a bit of an injustice in uh, failing to kind of Couch this this war as a, a war for the 21st century. Uh, now it's a little bit clearer, um, mm-hmm. you know what the stakes are.
1: We saw at the beginning, Russia. You know, maybe over the first few days after they launched this assault, started making some gains. What was the pivotal moment for uh, Ukraine's military? You
2: know, the pivotal pivotal moments were uh, before this war started. Frankly, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways probably the most important moment was somewhere uh you know historians will track this down a conversation between uh uh Putin and Shoigu Putin and uh, Gerasimov mm-hmm. in which he framed his expectations for this war uh you know in the military we use the term assumptions and uh we we uh, the uh, criteria for assumptions is that they have to be valid and necessary and in this case, the assumptions that drove the battle plan were that uh, were Russian chauvinism, Russian expectations that, you know, the little Russians, as the Russians mm. call it, Ukraine, would, uh, would surrender, uh, would not defend their country, would uh, accept a puppet regime, and that this would be easy. And those assumptions were absolutely essential to driving the initial battle plan, and a battle plan that, you know, had the Russians attempting to uh, seasoned airfield, unsupported uh, mm. to the north and west of Kiev, to rush towards cities with expectations that, uh, and just encircling the cities, the the Ukrainian regime would just give up. In fact, those assumptions, um, you know, spelled disaster for for the Russians. It it just shows kind of the importance of these like, you know, these framing moments for for a big huge plan like this. Uh, The Ukrainians, in a way, stumbled into uh, uh, some success. I think that there was, from the get go, the the Russians, if the Ukrainians were going to resist, the the, uh, Russians were never going to be able to achieve their goals. But there was another moment here. The Ukrainians also didn't believe that the Russians were actually going to attack. And therefore, they didn't defend at the border. And not defending at the border allowed the Russians to make deep penetrations. Into hmm. Ukraine and get all the way to Kiev, get all the way, you know, uh, uh, encircle um, almost encircle Kharkiv, uh, Ch- Chernihiv, mm-hmm. um, fight all the way out to Kherson. These are long stretches. Ukraine is the largest country in Europe,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and these are long stretches of road, hundreds of kilometers in certain cases. And what what ended up happening is uh, it was kind of almost uh, stumbling into some success here. Because when they did get to these cities, the Ukrainians start to pound them, uh, start to Mm. basically block them from entering the cities, start to pound them. And then when the Russians called for uh, resupply of fuel, because you burn through enormous amounts of fuel, you only carry with you, you know, a day or two of fuel, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, up to 72 hours of fuel on your your tanks and armored personnel carriers and your trucks traveling, you know, alongside of you. Uh, when they burn through their ammunition as they're fighting a fierce defense, they're calling for resupply. So, as well as being punished, you know, at the at the point of those battles, Ukrainians are wreaking havoc on those front lines with javelins and anti armor mm-hmm. capabilities and just really really well well executed ambushes. When these uh, resupply convoys, these logistics tails, started to roll through these hundreds of kilometers of uh, unsecured space, yeah they were obliterated and, uh, they, uh, those frontline units unsupported, uh, you know, w- without the, these, uh, sustainment, without uh, mm-hmm. uh, fuel resupplies ran out of fuel, uh, ran out of ammunition and were either abandoned or destroyed. Wow. And that is, uh, that was a, you know, just catastrophic loss for Russia. I remember somewhere about day four or day five, uh, you know, watching this and, uh, Fortunately, the Russians didn't listen to me, but, you know, <laughs> providing some commentary about the smartest thing that they could have done was basically to kind of retrograde back to the borders uh, where they had the supply lines, secure mm-hmm. supply lines, mm-hmm. and slowly making progress the way they're trying to do in the East. Mm. And in so doing, securing their logistics, moving up slowly, um, not giving the Ukrainians an opportunity to kind of destroy vul- vulnerable units it took them about four or five weeks to get to that point to realize that that's that's mm. what they need to do and they went with a, a much much more narrow campaign uh but even now uh the ukrainians have been uh, have proven themselves to be very very tactically effective and operationally effective uh those are two different echelons of so tactical would be like the you know the ambushes yeah. operational is this concept of uh the ukrainians is now running a um defense in, in depth so it's you know they have defensive positions staggered back uh if the russians overtake one there are more defensive positions but they're also mobile defenses meaning mm. that they they're not going to stay and fight and die um because the russians actually only means to victory is by destroying ukrainian units they could only win this war if they could defeat the ukrainian military on the battlefield um because they holding the amount of ground that they want to take even in the east 900 kilometers is impossible for the amount of force they have so by the Ukrainians having these uh, being successful operationally and kind of just punishing the Russians with their creeping advance, uh, the Russians have no real means to succeed actually, uh, and I think you know they're about to to be spent um, as a force on the ground. They still have their air power, and they still have these uh, rockets that they could fire from across the Russian border. That might perceive uh, that might give the perceptions to, to Putin that he could sustain this war, continue to punish the Ukrainians, and that's where. I've been most critical about the uh, uh, U.S. support is that we've not given the Ukrainians the tools they need to win this war decisively and um, uh, close off uh, perspectives on, you know, uh, uh, theories of victory for for Vladimir Putin. Do you see Mm, the policy?
1: um, uh, Do you see the policy um, uh, of U.S. now being more serious? Because over the past few weeks, I mean, there have been Mm. announcements of heavy weapons being sent. Do you see now going forward yes. that we are more invested in making sure that Ukraine succeeds?
2: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think uh that's that's uh, clear to me. But there are decades of uh you know policy inertia um that mm-hmm. warn against uh Russia being defeated too soundly and theor- fears of mm. uh, you know russian balkanization uh, if it fails or um uh theories you know kind of academic theories of um, mutual weakness on, uh, on for both parties to facilitate negotiations these things are still arresting the kind of full-throated support you know the rhetoric around moving heaven and earth to uh allow Ukraine to win those that that's still um unfortunately Aspirational. We're hmm. we're moving there. I, I feel like the rhetoric around this being a long war in certain ways undermines uh, uh, being providing Ukraine full, th- you know, kind of full throated support. The theory, if the theory initially was that Ukraine was going to be crushed, yeah, and there was no point in supplying Ukraine initially, it was a very defeatist attitude. Yeah, we've swung the, the pendulum swung too far over to the other side of protracted war, which allows us to kind of slowly meter an in equipment instead of flood. Ukraine with the equipment that they need, uh, including the high tech equipment that um that, that allows them to strike targets, you know, not deep inside Russia, but relevant military targets across the border. Yeah. Like airfields in Crimea and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction, you know. Uh I I, I uh, now balance my criticism with some uh, uh praise for for movement in the right direction, but we, okay. we have more to do. Uh, war is unpredictable. It's possible that you know the the uh, um, that the Russians would be so successful that they would potentially crush uh, Ukrainian morale and will to resist, uh, even if they didn't have all the forces they had. That you know on paper they had the high tech forces, mm-hmm. play the the operational concepts of using air power to go after critical targets, destroying Ukrainians air, uh, uh, air defense systems, to be able to fly you know un- unfettered or uh, the air force to um strong Ukrainian air force so they couldn't punish Ukrainian ground units m- maneuvering in uh those were concerns those were sh- things that it seemed like Russia should should have been able to do but um it became clear to me by about kind of you know when I when I I got a little bit more rest and saw that the Ukrainians were holding out I did the math the military math mm-hmm. to understand um that the Russians came in with about 120, 127 battalion tactical groups, mm-hmm. battalion-sized units, and when I did the math to figure out what they were trying to do around uh, Kiev, it turned out that they would need about 120 of those yeah. to do to, to to encircle uh, Kiev. They, you have to have both kind of what's called an inner cordon and outer cordon, an inner perimeter. To prevent the folks from inside the city from breaking out, and outer cordon to protect the uh, uh, anybody from reinforcing it or breaking through re- resupplying. So almost the entire force that the Russians had assembled would have to be positioned to seize Kiev. Instead, they were fighting on four uh, you know four different axes, uh, and uh, at that point, it was um, you know I I, I uh, concluded that the Russians just wouldn't be able to to, to do this, and the Russians would ultimately. Uh, have to go for much much more narrow objectives and there i was a little bit concerned that you know on more narrow objectives that they would be successful but again doing the math uh, uh math is useful <laughs> yeah. to even you know yeah. in the military yeah doing the math on really? what the russians had uh yeah uh, you know, ab- assembled in the east now they've lost a huge amount of their units somewhere between 75 and 93 battalion tactical groups if you do the military math and you kind of stack those uh, end to end, they could cover about 90 uh, kilometers. Yeah. Instead, they're fighting across 900 kilometers. So when they try to dig, they mm. shift from this offensive uh, to defense because they can't destroy the Ukrainian units. The Ukrainians are just running these sophisticated you know, mobile defenses and depth and stuff like that. When they try to shift to defense, they'll be completely porous. And the Ukrainians will be able to infiltrate behind their lines and just pound away at them. So the russians even though the hold that they have now there is untenable they're gonna to have to go for something much much smaller i imagine um as reluctant as they're gonna be they're gonna to have to fall back in certain areas and just uh, hold much much more limited gains uh otherwise they'll just get their their military demolished uh o- over time um so I, I i have pretty you know i i've got little doubt that the ukrainians are going to be successful in this phase especially with uh weapons pouring in from the west uh replenishing not you know in, in, in one hand on one hand uh, replenishing the losses that the ukrainians have taken uh, they they've taken some losses um you know the Russians have taken disproportionately higher losses the ukrainians have taken some losses um but also gaining advanced equipment now mm, they're yeah. gaining some pretty pretty good uh stuff and uh the Russians have burned through a lot of their best equipment mm. and uh, they burned through a lot of their best forces. So, uh, you know, the the balance on the ground is definitely shifted in favor of, uh, of Ukraine uh, at this point. Um, once we, we plug this hole, hopefully sooner than later with regards to long range fires that I've been calling for with these uh, long range rocket systems that we should be providing these high Mars, um, yeah. you know, these high, like these wheeled cannon mm-hmm. systems and stuff like that. And um, unmanned combat aerial vehicles, and, and you know, take our foot off the brake on transferring um, aircraft. Once we do that, I think uh, that it just makes it untenable for Russia to kind of sustain this war.
1: So we know Russia has been preparing for this strategy for a long time. I mean, honestly, I remember in 2009, you know, when they had the strategy of uh, eventually what we saw in 2014 to cut Ukraine, take the east, the south and cut Ukraine off from the ports and kind of just, you know, Mm. farm Ukraine out. Do you think that, I mean, so for one decade, they have been preparing for this. They attempted it in 2014, you know, made some gains by annexing Crimea and and occupying uh, Donbass, but they didn't, uh, they failed in Odessa, they failed in Kharkiv, and they failed in, you know, uh, the other cities they attempted to take over then. So then they, you know, kind of stayed with what they have. Do you think partly that they sent, Um, You know, not enough forces because now we go into more of Russia's other thing of uh, using influence operations. And we saw how they used influence operations inside of U.S. and how much damage it did. Do you think they were counting of having people that they have cultivated over the decades, basically since Ukraine became independent and, you know, and going forward over the past few decades to help? Grab power in cities, and then these would they were maybe counting on the forces to um, kind of more of like reinforcement
2: so I think you, you mean like in the opening phases before things started to unfold on the ground, I think they were counting on mm-hmm. uh, you know a fifth column. they were counting on uh, you know their their agents uh, to come through it's interesting I think the SB, SBU has been pretty good at uh, you know rooting out these folks um, steadily. I think there was an element of uh, self uh, preservation from, from the kind of agentura, the, the all these these assets that were in Ukraine, uh, pro Russian uh, parties. That if Russia was successful in those first several days, these people would be coming out of the woodwork to try to kind of seize power. Hmm. But because Russia has in fact been uh, so you know terribly unsuccessful. Uh, I think these people are, are, in a lot of ways, they've uh, either cast off um, visions of enriching themselves with kind of the a uh, 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 Russian annexed territory, um, you know, meaning that they like they this was some of this is probably a recognition of their misplaced uh, allegiance that Russia is kind of barbaric, they're destroying the cities, Russia is not, some of them very well may have bought into the kind of ideological uh, perspective that, uh, you know, we're, we're ethnic Russians, mm-hmm. our, our home might be with Russia. I think some of those, a lot of those people in the East kind of cast that off based on how Russia's behaved, because they they haven't had to live under a Russian regime yeah. since 1991. Yeah. And uh, they had some mis- misplaced notions of how, how things would work out. And I think others have been, uh, you know, just simply pragmatic uh, that there was no path to success, and have uh, either, you know, silenced their support or, uh, or, or, or you know, are okay. hiding, concealing themselves because they fear that SBU is going to discover sure. who they they are. But this is a sea change. Yeah. This is, you know, now there is no possibility of a kind of pro-Russian faction emerging uh, based on the way uh, this war is unfolded. Uh, I think that's uh, dead. Um, and R- Russia may try to try to uh, try to cl- claw back some some gains after this war over a long long time, uh, you know, enriching people, doing this kind of state a standard fare of, um, um, you know, uh, soliciting agents through uh, uh, bribes and things of that nature. Ideologically, I find it it's going to be nearly impossible for them to gain um, agents through um, some sort of ideological affinity, but. You know the other the other fundamental issues of uh, paying somebody or finding compromising material on somebody to get them to be his agents. That's going to be Russia's play in the long mm-hmm. term. Less yeah. informational, mm-hmm. I think.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Hi, everybody. We wanted to talk to you today about Athletic Greens. It's absolutely amazing because in the morning I get up, I take my little container, I put in one scoop, a little bit of uh, of warm water,
1: and and shake it up. And that's it. And I'm good for the whole day. It gives me like mental clarity, focus, and like I'm so alert these days. You know, whereas before I was kind of, kind of sluggish and, you know, and just not my on my A game. I don't have to think about taking all those vitamins
0: and supplements and stuff like that. It's all in one because I'm really, really bad at that kind of stuff.
1: To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file, com slash Kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
0: And I've been paying a lot of attention. Like we've all been paying attention to what is happening now in, in Mariupol. And you no, know, with the steelworks plant that's there, the, the Azovstal. Um, why are the why are the Russians? Let's say they're, they've been bombarding that now for a few days. They're trying to get you know the they've asked for humanitarian corridors. Ukrainians have to get people out. Why are they so hell bent on taking that area?
2: Well, I think the first uh, first objective here is um, Putin's already declared victory in Mariupol, mm. as of like you know two weeks ago. Um, now it's a matter of, uh, kind of realizing the, the rhetoric, like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of comical. Um, and in a, in a way he shows a template that he's, he's prepared to, you know, just do make hollow declar- declarations mm-hmm. of victory and then, um, let things fall out the way they might. Uh, we were talking about how much territory Russia is fighting along. And I think there's something to be said that, you know, Russia could afford to, give up some of its gains in certain areas but the one area where it's going to want to maintain its gains uh fundamentally if anywhere is on this uh land bridge between russia and uh crimea and mariupol is just very critical to that uh it's you know uh, the largest city on that route and as long as there is resistance there uh russia has to doesn't really have a kind of a secure land bridge and they the idea very well may be to secure this land bridge, call it uh, victory, say that the special military operation is over. Of course, the Ukrainians are not well, going to no. give up, but uh, from the Russian standpoint, you know, um, they could call it over and attempt to force the Ukrainians to a uh, compromise and try to pressure the West, uh, probably through some additional saber rattling, threatening mm-hmm. nuclear war right. or something like that, uh, to get the um, Ukrainians to do the bargaining table. The bottom line is that you know that's misplaced i think the ukrainians are going to fight to regain their territory uh depending on how successful they are they'll probably push to uh establish a status quo ante the conditions mm-hmm. before before february 24th they may even depending on how successful they are go all the way back to uh through the dunbas and unless uh putin makes another major blunder there have been several of them in this war Uh, I think the issue of Crimea might be tabled for another day, leave it it in its kind of special status. I think the Ukrainians would be prepared to accept that where, in fact, uh, you know, Crimea uh, goes through a process of um, negotiation. You know, the idea of uh, free and fair kind of a referendum type of thing down the road because Ukraine doesn't doesn't want to risk fighting for it and taking losses but that could all be undone with a huge mistake by Vladimir Putin. So hopefully he's listening <laughs> to this. If Putin does declare victory uh in this campaign and attempts to annex mm-hmm. Kherson, Lugansk, and Donetsk, that waters down the, the special status of uh that uh Crimea enjoys. That undermines the unique status that um you, Crimea is is a Russian territory because uh you know this is just Undoes this notion that Crimea was unique in Russia's conception uh, and uh, Ru- Russia's status, and then it actually makes you uh, Crimea vulnerable and in play for uh, uh, Ukraine to win back by military means. So that would be just a huge mistake. Uh, the best he, he should, at most, he should consider the you know dec- accepting them or recognizing them as independent or kind of uh, independent republics or something like that without annexing him. Because that would still allow um, Crimea to preserve its special status. U- Ukraine is a- a likely to fight through everything minus hmm. Crimea in that condition, in that situation. Interesting.
1: Okay. Do you think Putin is listening to mm-hmm. anyone right now, or do you think he's just hellbent on his own, mm. you know, uh, drive of of like oh, I'm not going to be defeated by the West. I'm not going to be defeated by Ukraine because in mm. his head, this is you know mm. a war with the West you know, with Ukraine uh, being yeah. in the middle.
2: I I, I think that's, um, certainly he thinks that this is a war with the West, but one of the signals that he absorbed relatively early, a mistake on the part of this administration, was on the uh, when we declared there would be no NATO boots on the ground under any circumstances. That basically signaled that the U.S. Uh, and NATO would not be would not be an obstacle to his aspirations in Ukraine. It was it was a, it was yeah. a terribly bad blunder. Exactly. We could have kept it ambiguous and basically made it clear, you know, when Russia was about to launch this attack that NATO wasn't going to be involved. We didn't have to make it, you know, six uh, almost two yeah. months ahead of time and basically clarify the the, the uh, this notion that the cost would be low. It was, it was a bad idea, but um, it seems to me. That uh, it's you know I think it's clear that he didn't have he doesn't have to deal with NATO boots on the ground NATO power he still has to fight NATO provisioning Russia mm-hmm. uh, and he recognizes to a certain extent that he's you know I think early at least for much much of this war that this is this is probably it's a good question I think the question is how does he rationalize yeah. the loss really yeah. maybe fundamentally. He's not likely to rationalize it as losing at the hands of uh the Ukrainians. He's likely to rationalize it as losing uh, at the hands of, you know, uh, covert actions, clandestine actions by mm. NATO in mm. Ukraine that are pulling the strings. So in that regard, I think, you know, there is probably a, a, a growing confidence, misplaced confidence because we're not there. Uh, and it is all yeah. Ukraine, actually, that's winning this war yeah. uh, with some support from the West. But there's probably a growing confidence and a narrative that he, he is fighting the West. Uh, he's fighting NATO. But I think he does have to uh, now, he's not, I don't think he's irrational. I think he's still kind of like a you know pretty competent, uh, very opportunistic leader. And he does have to uh, address this notion that He's been told that this is going to be an easy victory by his military mm-hmm. for a long time, and it's not materialized. So he is more than likely going to start to seek out other sources of information, try to understand, you know, where where he may have been met, mm-hmm. uh, led astray, and probably identify some scapegoats, including the military, including yeah. Gerasimov. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons he went out to Eastern Ukraine so he could he could take the hit uh, for for this disastrous war. So I think those types of things are, are you know, starting to kind of um,
0: okay. boil up. Is there any scenario at all where you could see, boil up like tea, uh, is there any scenario at all, Alex, where you could see, let's say, either NATO, like a combination NATO-US, well, US is in NATO, uh, troops in Ukraine at all? Yes.
2: I think um, the longer this war goes, let's say there's a worse um I laid out a different, mm-hmm. different theories of how May 9th could uh, drive the, this war. Uh, and one of those theories is a de- declaration of general mobilization. I think it's still kind of far-fetched because Russia has no gains to, um, to show to the population. Uh, it'll show weaknesses in the, the fact that Russian uh, military has failed. And uh, there's no clear prospects of, you know, just because you do a general mobilization, you're throwing more manpower at it, but there's no clear kind of theory for success. You're just looking to potentially, through attrition, to crush uh, Ukraine. It's unclear if you could do that. Um, But if he were to do that, it would indicate uh, that he's prepared to fight a months-long or years-long war. And in that scenario, uh, I think he would uh, likely fall back on his comfort zone. Poking and prodding, uh, seeking out vulnerabilities, seeking out mm-hmm. fractures, seeking out um, ways to exploit uh, his understanding of the Western mind, which is, I think, he he has a pretty good understanding. You know that, that we fall prey to our fears, hopes, and our fears and aspirations for somehow returning mm-hmm. to normalcy. Um, on the fear side of the equation, that uh, in you know maybe even going after NATO targets, NATO mm-hmm. safe havens like the, the, these depots that he could warn off for additional NATO support. He might try to do this uh, clandestinely Mm. uh, with deniability. He could do that through uh, cyber warfare. To me, this is kind of almost the worst case scenario. That's why I've urged this administration to think about ways to end this war quickly, to give Ukraine everything it needs to end quickly. Because uh, the most dangerous course of action doesn't unfold because we've done too much. Mm. It's because we've done too little and we stumble into a protracted war with greater commitment and greater stake uh, and you know the potential for regime or or, or uh, regime survival at stake and under those conditions i do see different courses of action you know these are all speculative that could potentially drag us into a war russia does use chemical weapons russia uh, ha- accidentally destroys a, a, a nuclear yeah. power plant with radioactive uh, um plumes wafting over yeah. europe
0: that's yeah, a security
2: yeah. risk to europe yeah. um you know we, we are ready or this war has already spilled over in the economic yeah. informational sphere yeah. and political sphere the only sphere it hasn't spilled over yet is military and uh everything else we're in a hot okay. war with russia it's only cold war on the military plane and uh the danger is that it spills over that way in the long war and we find ourselves, you know, reluctantly, as we did in World War One or World War Two, uh, in in a war. That's why, you know, again, it's just so uh, pathetically short-sighted to believe that um, we could just somehow, very, very um, narrowly avoid um, being drawn into this war in a long mm-hmm. war scenario.
1: Speaking of spilling over. Um, There has been a very, very, very similar uh, resemblance of the same playbook, literally, but from several months leading up to Ukraine to now in a matter of a few weeks of Transnistria. And it, I mean, when I say it's identical playbook, they started with the rhetoric protecting, you know, Russian speakers, uprooting Nazism in Moldova. Sandu is a Nazi now, according to the Russian government. Um. And then you saw, you know, uh, same players who are putting out that Romania is uh, on the ground, their military, and that they're there to start a war. And you, and then from there it led immediately into, you know, uh, uh, another Russian government official saying that they are going to soon recognize Transnistria as a Russian territory. And then you had a series of um, terrorist attacks, false flag operations. Do you see it spilling over into Moldova or in Kaliningrad or uh, Poland and Mm -hmm. and, uh, Poland? Do you see Putin pulling NATO in?
2: Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, it's interesting. When I wrote my uh, article uh, back in January, I I talked about the potential for spillover. And I think uh, certainly Putin's aspirations uh, in succeeding in Ukraine would have carried forward to places like Moldova and um, Georgia, probably down the line, uh, the, the the locations that are uh, least amenable to Russian power. Um, so I think this was probably part of the initial plan. I think it's the height of idi- idiocy to attempt uh, a scenar- a Moldova scenario, when when they're having such an impossible time hmm. in Ukraine, uh, so unlikely to succeed that they would try to do another. Uh, you know, uh, adventure in Moldova. Uh, it probably shows uh, how out of touch they were. They still had confidence that they would be able to achieve a breakthrough. This Some of this was two weeks ago when they were starting this more narrow campaign, and they thought that they could race through, mm. you know, <laughs> eastern Ukraine and southern yeah. uh, Ukraine. Just completely uh, unrealistic expe- expectations. That's all out the window because they can't even they're bar- barely making any progress now and they're about to to be spent. They'll run out of resources. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, I covered Moldova also for the national security council and I'm a big fan of Maya Sandu. I met her when she was out of government still. And, uh, you know, we, I remember this vividly, this conversation, um, in the white house, in the, in the executive office building, uh, of her saying, you know, kind of discussing the merits of running for mm-hmm. prime minister, uh, or, or president down the road. And, um, you know, just, having a very very favorable impression of her and she's uh definitely uh, exceeded even high, the high expectations i had for her she's turned out to be a, ter- a you know marvelous leader um so it's very good very good to see her uh you know in this difficult moment rising to the occasion just like uh, vladimir Zelensky. um and in a lot of ways uh, uh the, the ukraine's success will spill yeah. over into moldovan success frankly you know uh, Moldova's also captured the attention of uh, of uh, Europe less so the United States and it's going to carry over into a place like Belarus which seemed like uh you know authoritarianism was was locked in for the foreseeable future as long as Lukashenko is in, in uh alive but frankly in Ukrainian success his p- position becomes quite untenable um and I think there is likely to be civil unrest uh and it's possible. I mean, I could see Ukrainians wanting to mm-hmm. settle scores too, and nurturing a Belarusian opposition
0: mm-hmm.
2: in Ukraine to help overthrow Lukashenko. Completely justifiable, okay. given the fact that you know yep. uh, Belarus was a safe haven and a belligerent in a lot of ways because um, they allowed the mm-hmm. Russians to strike out from Belarus. So I think you know, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, yeah. Lukashenko is also toast in the, in the foreseeable, probably in, the, in you know in the next several years. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, the Russians are likely to double down like they did with this Moldova scenario before they, uh, if they see any possibilities for success. This is why I kind of said we can't give the Russians Mm. any breathing Mm. room. They need to be soundly defeated because any, uh, uh, you know, any successes in the East would have been uh, the recipe for Mm -hmm. advance, advance towards Moldova, advance back towards Kiev. Uh, they need to be soundly defeated in order to uh, foreclose any avenues towards victory in order to, to end this war. Um, and we're, I think we're coming yeah. around to that notion, uh, you know, too too slowly for comfort, yeah. but we are coming around to that notion. And I, I thought it was too precarious a situation two weeks ago that we didn't do enough to help Ukraine, but I guess we didn't have to do that much to help Ukraine because all this equipment is now only now starting to fly, uh, flow in. And Ukraine is winning on its own. I mean, it's, You know, we will, as the West, as the kind of like, these absurd notions, you know, the past day or so, I've been batting down these absurd articles about how central U.S. intelligence has been to Mm. Ukraine victory, or how central some, you know, javelins or stingers have been. It is, these are marginal factors. It is the Ukrainian population, it is the Ukrainian military that has uh, won this war with little support from the West, frankly. And I hate this idea of trying to steal credit from the uh from the because we we have such pride in ourselves, uh you know we overreach that we we take credit from these uh yeah. these warriors that have defend their That's country right. and defend democracy.
0: Right.
1: You mentioned these articles, and two days suddenly you know it comes out that we're providing mm-hmm. intelligence. We're the ones who gave the Intel to take out generals yeah and overnight it comes out. We gave Intel to take out musqua uh the ship. What was fascinating, and I checked this morning because I couldn't wait up actually to wake up to see what's happening this morning. We re- This uh, CNN report came out that we provided intelligence to take um, the mm. ship out Moscow. Moskva, right? Mm-hmm. It took several hours for it to get into one Russian outlet, and it's very fascinating the choice mm. that picked it up. It was uh, Moskovsky Konsolets, and they picked up, this report, I checked. Hmm. Has didn't. Ria didn't. And then hmm. through Moskovsky Komsomolits, it went through um uh, all, a bunch of secondary um hey uh, call articles like Russian articles like Olivia right. mosti and and the rest. What what is going on? What do you think with this? Because. It, it you know yeah. the the reynovacy yeah. like picks up if if uh, you know Jensaki sneezes it's like right away breaking <laughs> Jensaki just sneezes on stage yeah, exactly. here they did not touch this yeah. and for several weeks they have been saying that it was a fire that took out took the down ship. the ship and yep. suddenly we see this. well
2: sure it's it's informed speculation but I think uh, there's a couple of different reasons here. Um, they don't want to acknowledge the fact that it was lost to enemy uh contact. uh it's you know too too much of a symbol. Um, but more importantly just like when uh, the US destroyed some 300 Wagner mercenaries in mm-hmm. Derizor uh they don't want to acknowledge that it was the, you know it's good to talk about atmospherically uh kind of uh, conceptually that the west is providing support and pulling mm-hmm. the strings to Ukraine. But if the U.S. is directly involved in the slaughter mm-hmm. of generals or in Moscow or destruction of the Moscow, then the, Russia has an obligation to respond mm-hmm. um, to defend, you know, d- defend its forces, and they do not want to get into a tangle with NATO. Uh, they are, are deathly afraid of this, and I think on that basis, um, it's not helpful to have, you know, the uh, kind of clickbait titles that don't actually. Uh, um, uh don't amount to um us support to to make these to, to go after these targets um but it certainly doesn't serve russia's interest to inflame this k- kind of um uh, notion that then compels a response and i, I, I do need to um kind of explain mm-hmm. a little bit about how this works the us provides tons of intel it's not it's not um it has not been like uh, real time It has not been kind of fed in real time. There's a whole process that it goes through. Um, So therefore, it's not easily actionable because it's not real time. You know, the U.S. will provide some information. uh, And then the, the Ukrainians do a very, very good job of analyzing the information that the U.S. does provide and then just selecting the targets and prosecuting those targets. So there was probably some... Uh, assistance provided in terms of like understanding, you know, the, uh, uh, what mm-hmm. the Russian Navy was doing, where the command nodes were, uh, you know, kind of more generally. But it's again the Ukrainians using their means to triangulate exactly mm-hmm. where these targets were, uh, you know, doing the reconnaissance, the the with the UAVs, the unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance uh, conducted by. Um, Mm-hmm. like the Birektars, uh and then going after those targets so it's wh- well overstating the role that the the US played okay, really in going after those targets
0: okay i had read this this um this quote and alex i wanted your know what your thoughts on this okay armies reflect the qualities of the societies from which they emerge russia's state rests on corruption lies okay. lawlessness and coercion now, I think that, you know, when I read this and it resonated and I said, OK, um, I think it's one of the reasons why Russia will lose this war and why Ukraine will prevail. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. Uh First of all, who who made that quote? Because this is a, the same, much <laughs> okay. better way of putting it than I did.
0: <laughs> I found it in, in the article. I will find it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've yeah. been saying this for
2: yeah it's it's basically the same notion that you know the barbarism reflects the society the barbarism reflects uh, you know the the values of authoritarianism and that the military uh reflects the same kind of uh um societal values uh in you know corruption uh, endemic corruption uh leading to kind of a hollow force with uh, minimal capabilities it's i completely agree with that notion i, you know, I will. Uh, you find it, I'd, yep. I'd be curious to know who it is, and maybe you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll offer that, that I'll, I'll attribute the quote to somebody, but it's mm-hmm. the same thing that I've been saying, um, for, for some time that, um, the Russians are likely to lose on this basis, and that's why I think this is so, so important for geopolitics at large. That then China has to reflect mm-hmm. on their real capabilities can they face off against uh, uh taiwan that's going to resist uh, under all uh with all means uh can they conduct a successful amphibious attack and things of that nature and um it's a chilling effect on authoritarianism and uh, what authoritarianism can accomplish because they see reflections of themselves in in, in mm-hmm. you know russian power russian successes but also russian failures uh and i think that's what one of the the, the major stories of Ukraine winning this war is it really does uh, push back on this notion, this alternative vision that China has been trying to cast about uh, managed democracy mm-hmm. or kind of um, Chinese um, forms of capitalism and stuff like that. It chose it to be weak.
1: Yeah, that's um, actually really funny because I uh, hate called, you know, I have made jokes with like, you know, people who I know who used to deal in Russia and now have fled. Like, you know, they robbed so much from every contract that I mean I don't wanna test it out, but I'm like if they send even like say they said Putin you know, says, that's a launching missile to U.S., a nuclear missile. I'm like, will that even like come to us or will it, like go back into Siberia? Because they don't maintain anything. They, <laughs> oh they really do. No, we're laughing, like, For every contract. <laughs> for every contract. This is what they've been doing for decades. They're robbing it. And it's yeah. like you see even Victory Day Parade. I'm actually going to retweet. Every year. I monitor their victory day parade every year. No fail last year. Now this is victory day parade. Right. The biggest, you know, thing. That's it. last year a tank is going it starts smoking. How embarrassing the year before a tank falls off in the middle, like a huge crowd falls off the flatbed and just like rolls over. And I'm like, there you oh, go. Yikes. Victory day parade. yikes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is,
2: it's showing its belly like a dog does <laughs> rolls over gonna its belly i'm going to send
1: you that because it edit. is so funny and yeah. i'm like and i saw someone yeah i someone, saw, saw um,
2: there's a picture of me at one point sitting yeah sitting in the victory day parade i guess it was in like 2000 hmm. you know 14 or something like that um you know in the in the in those uh, the ds in the, the um stands kind of observing it in my official capacity oh, now and what what
0: it's
1: was like, your feeling? What did you
0: what did you what did you yeah. feel while you were watching all of this? Like what what observations can you give to us? It, it, it was a sh- quite the show. Okay. It looked very impressive. It was quite the
2: show. It looked very impressive. Um, you know, uh, it was a good display of Russian power, but it also was. Uh, it's the, the, the yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's pro- it's yeah. It's a Potemkin
0: army. So it's a it's a propaganda. it's a propaganda moment. So it's a show. It's a show.
1: I mean, yeah. It's a they, show. They want to reflect, and then when they actually... And to my final question on this, what was Putin thinking? Because <laughs> Russia never, I mean... No, I know Russia everybody- never, you know, I, I know his, you know, grandiose, you know... Uh, Eurasia. The restoring the Soviet Union Dugan, and this and that. Yeah. But...
2: I think I have a good what good what feel, was he actually, thinking Russia in
1: like four decades has yeah. never Russia like with everything we're saying, they are good to project more than they actually can accomplish, so they're very successful when it takes uh you know when it uh they have to like grab territories when they have to you know conduct operations yeah. destabilizing mm-hmm. disinformation operations. they're excellent with that, but what was he thinking trying? To take over the second largest country in Europe, mm. thinking that he's going to hold on to it to succeed without first, second largest, <laughs> the yeah, largest the largest country in Europe, country in Europe um, holding on to the territory, thinking he's going to succeed uh, succeed without ever even testing this military, you know, because he's only tested this yeah. military in little so, spaces, uh, never yeah. like and yeah. and a full blown right. takeover.
2: Well, there's two two. There are two elements here, Here, I, I think. Um, uh, well, actually, maybe three major elements. The first, first is an ne- absolute need mm-hmm. to take action before it's too late. Uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine was slipping through Russia's fingers. It couldn't afford to uh, just let uh, Ukraine slip through its fingers based on the fact that Ukraine, as a viable, prosperous, democratic nation, somewhere down the road, even kind of far off, uh, would present, you know, kind of very challenging ideological situation for Russia and the Russians that have a deep sense of chauvinism and of Russian power. And Mm -hmm. the question is like, why can't we enjoy Mm -hmm. that prosperity also? And uh, Ukraine was getting increasingly more capable of defending itself. The other one is opportunity. He had a deeply misplaced notion uh, based on Russian chauvinism of Russian power versus Ukrainian power. Ukrainian power. We're talking about Ukrainian power now. Ukraine is a great power, a uh, great regional power. Know, right? It's pretty amazing, but it is a great regional power. Um, and then the other aspect of this uh, that was a big mistake was, uh, you know, believing that over the course of 22 years in power, that there was a uh, enormous vulnerability hmm. in, uh, emanating from the West, that the U.S., that the West and the U.S. were not as strong as they seemed that the um, Mm. U.S. was distracted, um, divided. Uh, It's not coincidental that this war, in earnest, started to get planned just weeks after January 6th Um, and uh, uh, Trump's uh, efforts to steal an election. uh, The U.S. uh, looked terribly weak. Uh, The divide between the U.S. and um, NATO seemed vast also based on the damage of Donald Trump. Um, it was seemed clear to him, mistakenly so, that the Republican Party was not going to impose a cost. So all these different pieces kind of added up to this notion mm-hmm. that he could get away with this. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians were not going to put up a fight. The West was not going to impose costs. It, it was quite logical. Mm-hmm. And from his perspective, he's seen nothing but kind of weakness in the face of his strength, his shows of force, whether that's uh, the West turning... Uh, looking the other way to undemocratic actions in his first term in the early two thousands, where we kind of wanted a good relationship. This was under the Bush administration, or or uh, you know not suffering any consequences for trying to steal the election, resulting in the Orange Revolution under the Bush administration. Under Obama, a reset. Just you know, date uh, like months invasion. after. Uh, Orange Revolution, Mm -hmm. relatively modest costs to the war in 2014, uh, assassination attempts, chemical weapons, um, poisoning of adversaries or uh, nuclear weapons, poisoning of adversaries or assassination attempts or bounties on U.S. soldiers or, um, you know, attempting to steal uh, uh, or uh, interference in in the 2016 election. All of this amounted to a theory that, he could get away with it that the U.S. would kind of look the other way. In fact, uh, in a lot of ways, it was uh, the U- Ukrainians' ability to resist, uh, Ukrainian leadership, and the, the the public in both Europe and the and the United States rallying around the Ukraine uh, that undid a lot of those uh, theories of success. And uh, the American population came out early and in force behind. Uh, the Ukrainian people and demanded that uh, the administration do more to the point where you know folks on the right uh that uh, President Trump had captured had to do a one hundred and eighty degree mm-hmm. reversal of their positions yeah. on who the bad guys and the good guys were, so I think again a lot of his actions were uh logical uh they were he was reading kind of relatively superficial indicators of success without having a kind of a deeper analysis of how things were likely to fall out and that democracy would rally for democracy.
1: I I said it since um, January. I am convinced that this is the end of him. Not short term. I don't think we'll see then, you know, hopefully. But I'm convinced he's not going to survive this. He overstepped his reach. And And that's it. I just don't see. Right. I see a free Russia coming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well uh the let's say uh you know he was wrong thank goodness okay that he was wrong and alex i'm going to remind everybody because here right the title of your book is here right matters now you've it's an american story but i hope that one day you're also going to write the ukrainian story okay as well okay so Hmm. great great well i am writing the ukrainian
2: story um Oh, that's My dissertation right. is on uh, um, for Johns Hopkins uh, SICE is on U.S. foreign policy towards Russia and Ukraine Fantastic. since 1991. Uh, I am going to defend it very, relatively shortly. I've written the you know the first half of it already. Amazing. Um, I just you know I've have, I have, there's this war that's been preventing <laughs> me from finishing it up, but I'll find some time uh, to do that.
0: So thank you, thank you, Alex. Okay, for coming by. Thank you. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast Don't forget to subscribe And please visit our website KremlinFile.com This is a Bunker Crew Media production Hosted by Olga Lautman And me, Monique Camara, With executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett And Jordi Micellis of Midas Media With associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz Theme music by Oreste Camarra sound editing and mixing by joy ellett subscribe to kremlin file wherever you listen to podcasts